So welcome back to another exciting edition of the Decipio podcast. Um, tonight, because it's a holiday week and I'm such a nice guy, uh, it's just going to be me on this podcast. Um, I'm not requiring anybody to give up part of their Thanksgiving vacation to uh, <clears throat> hang out with me and talk about the bears, God forbid. Uh, so on this podcast, I'm going to talk about a lot of different things. Um, We're going to talk about the Bears. We're going to talk about the best college football game I've seen all season. Uh, We're going to talk about the the NBA, and I'm sure we'll touch on the Bulls uh, if we have to. I'm going to talk about the Cubs, and then I've got a couple of, uh, I've got a media thing I want to discuss, and then uh, I'm going to bring back a thing we used to do when when Mike Bright used to do this podcast instead of his... uh, Twilight Zone rewatch podcast that he does now instead. Um, I'm going to make some recommendations for uh, things you can watch. So, if you're interested in any of that stuff, this is going to be a very exciting podcast for you. If you're not, well, you already listened to the commercial, <laughs> so I got credit for it, so uh, you're fine. See you next week. So, I do want to talk about the Bears. They are actually coming off of, I mean, it's a win. It's the Lions, but still it counts. It's a it's a win. Uh, not the Lions. It was the Giants. They're playing the Lions on a very short turnaround this week, which, you know, it's, it's tough to try to win two games in four days when you typically like to win once a month or so, but that's what they're going to try to do. So this, of course, will actually be a rematch of a game the Bears won just a couple of weeks ago, and it's a rematch of quarterbacks too. So it's Mitchell Trubisky for the Bears against the great Jeff Driscoll. So I think we can combine these two in one quarterback. I'm going to call it Driscbisky. It makes as much sense as anything else. Basically, Driscoll I think was a, if I remember right, he was a fifth or sixth round draft pick of the Niners a few years ago. Mitch, of course, second pick in the draft, Bears traded up to get him, and there's not a freaking nickel's worth of defense or difference between these two morons. They're basically the same guy. Uh, they're both bad. And the Lions got Driscoll. I think it's his third team. Um, it's really exciting. You can watch him. So they played a few weeks ago. They're gonna play. They're gonna ruin your Thanksgiving. And then this winter, I'm sure they'll hook up at least once or twice in the XFL. So you can watch him. So if you hearken back to the November 10th game, uh, when the Bears beat the Lions at Soldiers Field, um, it was a game where the Bears, I didn't think this was possible, the Bears actually ran the ball more than they passed it. Now only by one, I mean, Nagy doesn't want to go too crazy, but they ran the ball 24 times for 83 yards. That's it's bad, but it's better than running, you know, four times for eight yards. And Mitch, his numbers look pretty good. Not a lot of yards, but 16 for 23, 173 yards, three touchdowns, nary an interception. Very efficient. It's just what you want. Way to go, Mitch. Except it really wasn't. We'll get to that in a second. The Lions had um, 
not so much balance. They ran the ball 27 times for 97 yards, better than what the Bears did. But they, <laughs> I didn't remember this happened. Jeff Driscoll threw 46 passes. Hey, nobody is going to win if they have Jeff Driscoll on their team throwing 46 times. He was 27 of 46, 269 yards, a touchdown, and a pick to the great Nick Kwiatkowski. So, if you remember this game, it seems like, well, you know, the Bears must have played pretty well. <laughs> I Offensively, they really were competent for about a half hour. And that includes overtime. Or it includes halftime, not overtime. It includes halftime. Here's what I mean. The first four times they had the ball, they got one first down. Then they had a 10-play, 76-yard drive, scored a touchdown to end the first half. They started the second half with the ball, five plays, 54 yards for a touchdown. Then they got the Kwiatkowski interception, three plays, 25 yards, and a touchdown. They're rolling. Three touchdowns and three straight drives. They were, they ran 18 plays and three drives. It's what you want. Now you got to just finish the game. Here's how they finished. They got one first down in their final five drives. Count them five. And I believe Mitch got sacked to end three of those possessions. So that's just great. Um, so Thanksgiving, short week, short turnaround, abnormally early game. I know it's only a half hour earlier than normal, but that these delicate flowers on the Bears, this tends to screw them up. I can tell you right now, this game is going to be unwatchable. You're going to watch it because it's football and it's Thanksgiving, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> Even if they win, you're not going to like it. And they should. They're just, you're not going to like it. So this brings me to um, my, one of my old friends, Bill Ketching, um, was at the game on Sunday, the immortal, we've all seen the immortal uh, video now of the bear fan who somehow smuggled an entire pumpkin pie and a can of whipped cream into the game, and he cracked that puppy open <clears throat> right during the game. First of all, if you're going to smuggle a pie into the game, don't do pumpkin. I mean, come on, let's get let's get a good pie, maybe like a French silk, you know, something. Just going to go to all that trouble, and you got to eat all that freaking, you know, Libby's canned pumpkin that you spread out in that pie. Catching didn't go into great detail, but we basically talked about how, you know, the the in-game experience at Soldier Field is not great. Now, I don't really think it's not it's not a huge condemnation on the Bears game day staff, and maybe the, the guys who actually play a condemnation of them or who coach them, uh, but not necessarily on the staff, because I think it's like that in every NFL. Stadium. You know, they didn't put a roof on Soldier Field, which, because it was going to show just how tough bear fans are. We don't need a roof. We need bear weather. No, we needed a roof because it would be also nice to have things like the Super Bowl. You know, that God forbid the Bears are going to go to one. So it'd be nice to have one come to town. Uh, it'd be nice to have the Final Four, you know, as like Stephen A. Smith would say, things of that nature. Uh, we don't get that. And 
so you're stuck in crap weather for at least half the season watching mediocre football and not being on your own couch, having to pay stadium prices for beer instead of just wandering to your fridge. Um, so basically what Bill said was he's done going to games now. It just wasn't, it wasn't fun and he's not going to go. And some people, you know, I'm sure look at that and go, Oh, you're not a real fan. I consider myself a real fan. I love the bears. I've rooted for them since I was a very small child. I remember watching bear games even before I remember watching Cubs games. I haven't been to a bear game since 2005. I do not miss it at all. You know, they do televise the games. And yes, you may have to put up with Tom Brenneman or Dick Stockton or Mark Slareth, but uh, I never have a hard time finding a parking spot. The food's always good. The beer's always cheap. Or, I don't buy cheap beer, but I don't have to pay, you know, $12 for it. And so I just enjoy myself more watching the games. Plus, when the Bears suck, like I watch my setup, I watch the Bears. I have two TVs down here because I'm a fancy man. And on the other TV, I have the Bread Zone channel. So I can just keep an eye when the, the Bears, my attention wanders away from the Bears uh, because they're bad. And I can just watch this other screen. It's a very enjoyable experience. I thought it was also interesting. We had uh, the great uh, Tom Brenneman and. <laughs> Chris Spielman doing the game and at one point I don't remember which one of them it was that noted that the Bear fans weren't making any noise at all and they just seemed to be resigned to having a bad team which of course is 100% true and so I wrote down or I tweeted out the famous quote apathy has many voices yet uses none I don't know if any of you know who coined that brilliant phrase but it was me I just made it up on the spot I think it sounded pretty good yeah, it was horseshit but it sounded pretty good so yes we are all a little apathetic about our bears which is amazing considering how excited we were when the season started and um, it also it's funny it's happened now <clears throat> with um, well as I don't, I'm not even sure that Mark Sorath is sentient. So maybe it doesn't happen with Sorath. It certainly happened. We heard it happen with Troy. We heard it happen with Tony Romo. And now we heard it happen with Spielman, where the, the analyst comes into their first Bear game of the year, and they talk about how, look, this is Matt Nagy. He's an offensive guru. He's a genius. He turned that team around last year. You know, all of a sudden they went from, you know, not making the playoffs for several years in a row to 12 and four and a double doink or they go to the, you know, they're going to go play the Rams in the second round of the playoffs. This guy clearly knows his offense. And so in the first quarter, they're talking about, you know, Nagy is still, you know, this guy is, this guy is sharp. There's just no reason the Bears should be struggling this bad. By the second quarter, they seem a little less confident in what they're watching offensively with the Bears. (laughs) And, uh, by the third quarter, they are now criticizing, you know, weird formations and how cutesy everything is. And by the fourth quarter, they're basically like, this fucking guy doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and it's just interesting to hear every analyst who comes in have to go through what I said, the, the four levels of Matt Nagy and competence, where you work your way from, no, clearly it has to just be a complete lack of competent quarterback play to, I don't know, this guy would know what to do with anybody. 
So that's uh, it's been interesting to watch. Uh, I would guess that actually I don't know who we're gonna get on Thursday. So let me look up who we're getting here. It's a Fox game, so we're gonna get our buddies Joe and Troy. So Troy's already been through it. So he will uh, he won't come in with the illusion that Nagy knows what the fuck he's doing. Um, typically, I let Mike and Kyle do the picks uh, before me, so that I can just go opposite them. Uh, but they're not here. I'm surrounded by I don't know if you can hear in the background one of our dogs. Uh, my wife bought pork rinds for them to have as a treat, and Beasley has decided that she would like to continue getting the pork rinds. So she is upstairs, standing in the middle of the kitchen, barking at where she thinks the pork rinds are. So if you can hear her in the background, uh, that's what's going on. It's amazing to me how many games the Bears have been favorites in. I think they've been favorites in all but two. They are favorites again, which I guess makes sense. The Lions have lost seven of eight. They're just hot garbage. Bears are favored by three points with the over-under of 39. I like how the the over-under keeps crawling down week after week after week. Um, I've been picking against the Bears, well, somewhat out of, I don't think they're very good, and then somewhat out of spite. Um, so, I but I can't pick the Lions in this game. I just can't. So I'll take the Bears, uh, take the points, but the under, because I just don't think we're going to get a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of offense on either team, so... That's my guess there. So this is a weird little tradition that I have just for myself. Even though I went to the Harvard of the Midwest, Northern Illinois University, for whatever reason, I think it this goes back like, it's got to be a good decade, maybe more than a decade. One of you out there will remember this. Uh, for some weird reason, WGN, Superstation WGN, used to show the Harvard-Yale game, you know, the game. And maybe it's because Dan Jiggets was doing the color, <laughs> because he was Harvard grad, Dan Jiggets. Um, but they would pick it up. And so I, for a couple of years I watched it, and as a slow white guy who played football, uh, I always thought, you know, if I had played in college, maybe I could have played for one of these teams, which is ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're you know, I could not have played for either of them. But I guess so I just, it became a, a tradition. He had to hunt for the game for a while. It was on, it was on CNBC a couple of years. And then NBC Sportsnet picked it up for a while. Well, now it seems to have found a home on ESPN. And they, I think they used to hide it on ESPN News. But the last couple of years it's on ESPN too. Last year they played the game at Fenway because Harvard Stadium was being renovated. Uh, but this year it was back on campus at the Yale Bowl which is just this ridiculous concrete edifice, which they said during the broadcast at the time it was built was the largest sporting venue in the United States. So I think it, I think originally it seated like 90,000. It's been reconfigured. I think it seats between 60 and 70 now, which they do not need for this game. Um, but it's kind of a cool stadium, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have lights. It makes sense. I mean, the games kick off at noon out there. What the hell do you need lights for? Well, it, it became almost a big deal on Saturday. So I like to watch the game. And this one was 
particularly entertaining. Um, Harvard Harvard came in f- uh, four and five, uh, two and four in the Ivy. Yale was eight and one, five and one in the conference. Um, and Dartmouth was playing Brown, I think. And if Dartmouth won, then Yale had to win to win a share of the Ivy League. If they both lost, somebody else could sneak in, maybe, and there could be a three-way tie. But anyway, they kept making a huge deal out of the fact that Harvard needed a win to get to 500 because that would mean they've been 500 or better in every season in the century. And they acted like that was a big deal, and I just don't think it is. <laughs> but the announcers did. Um, so the announcers, they had they had West Durham... And, oh, God, I was going to write the other guys. This is quality podcasting. I don't remember the other guy. He did have a very funny joke, though. During the game, they gave a uh, they gave a score uh, for Northwestern, and Minnesota was beating the crap out of Northwestern. And West Durham said, well, it looks like Minnesota's rowing the boat in Evanston. And the other guy goes, hey, everybody's been rowing the boat in Evanston except for, except for Northwestern. I thought that was kind of funny. And then Jack Ford who used to be, like, I think he used to be an NBC legal analyst. Then he hosted the Weekend Today show for a while. Um, but he played defensive back at Yale. And so he's part of the coverage. And so it was very interesting also that they had a, a bona fide newsman on the crew. So the game starts. Harvard gets off to a, to a quick start. They have this running back named... Aiton Bourget, and he had a huge game. Uh, he only ran the ball 11 times, but he ran for 269 yards and four touchdowns. Should have been, you know, should have been the story for the game. He wasn't even close to the story for the game. Yale has a quarterback named Kurt Rawlings, who has a curly blonde mullet, and maybe for Movember, or maybe just because he just got tired of uh, ever shaving had this creepy little wispy mustache and bad beard. So I immediately liked him because it was such a terrible attempt at either of those things. He had great stats, and he played like shit. Just amazing how the numbers you can roll up despite missing easy passes, uh, being completely indecisive as to when to run the ball, when to keep the ball. Now, he didn't play very well for the first half at all. He had a big second half. Uh, He finished the game. So it sounds like he had an amazing game. 33 of 53 for 417 yards and three touchdown passes. He ran 18 times for 101 yards and a touchdown. So you think, oh, God, Kurt Rawlings was amazing. If you watch the game, you were like, God, Yale's quarterback is dog shit. Yale's got two scrappy little white wide receivers who I expect uh, the Bears to draft both of them and try to turn them into tight ends. Um, And hopefully Ryan Pace trades up to pick both these guys. And uh, they have very Yale names, um, which I, my terrible handwriting here. I believe it is Reed Klubenik and J.P. Schofi. Um, Klubenik had nine catches for 141 yards. Schofi, 10 catches for 103. So, first half was all Harvard. Um... Yale was having Yale was turning the ball over. They just were not playing well at all. Harvard got off to a fifteen to three lead. So 
goes to halftime, comes back from halftime, and ESPN does this weird thing where they just do kind of a wide shot of the field, and it looks like Up With People has collapsed at midfield. There's just bodies everywhere. <laughs> and they go to commercial. And so I remember sitting there going, what kind of weird halftime show was that? They come back, and we find out that that is not the remnants of a halftime show. I don't know if it was right. It was right at the end of halftime. So the the Yale, both the Yale and Harvard, like the specialists are out. The kickers are practicing kicking. The punters are punting, all that stuff. Fans from every corner of the stadium, students, came out onto the field and squatted right at midfield. And they had signs protesting Yale and Harvard's complicity in climate change. And um, saying that they um, should forgive Puerto Rico's debt. Very Harvard-Yale thing to do. So they're out there on the field. ESPN doesn't quite know what to do. <laughs> so they, they immediately go to another commercial. So you're sitting at home like, you know, what the hell's going on with this? Shouldn't we be getting things going again? Come back, and then they just send us to another game. I don't remember if it was like Memphis and somebody, I think. And so I'm like, well, I, didn't, I don't want to watch this shit. I, you know, I wanted to watch the preppy assholes run into each other for three hours and then you know, go back to my normal life. That protest lasted like an hour and seven minutes. <laughs> them just on the field. And apparently, I find this out later, Sam Waterston, um, not the guy who uh, drew Calvin and Hobbes, but the guy who used to be on Law and Order, I guess it would be Bill Waterston, uh, who drew Calvin and Hobbes, was one of the people on the field. So after an hour, the administrators from both uh, schools convinced the students that, okay, you've made your point, we need to get you off the field. And a few of them said, apparently what they told them was, if you don't get off the field, we're going to arrest you. And a few of them said, I want to be arrested, including Sam Waterston. I want to get arrested. It's like, okay, fine. So the kids who didn't want to get arrested, they got them off the field, and then they got out the little zip ties little pretend handcuffs, and they handcuffed the rest of them, and they walked them off. And then the second half started. And what I thought was really interesting about it was, on the coverage, they've got a guy who is a legal expert and a former newsman at NBC, and they either didn't use Jack Ford to do that, or he didn't know what to say about any of it. <laughs> they did send him down, and he finally got to talk to a couple of students. He didn't do it on camera. God forbid. Didn't get any of that on camera. Um, he did talk to them and find out at least what they were protesting. As if the huge signs they were holding up weren't enough of a clue for Jack. He found out what they were protesting. Anyway, so they get the second half underway. And uh, one of the announcers made the astute observation that, you know, it's it's late fall, almost winter, and the sun was set to uh, set at 4.27 uh, Eastern Time, which was now not so far off. And you're playing in a stadium that doesn't have any lights. So for me, a guy who grew up, at least when I was a little kid, the Cubs didn't have lights at Wrigley Field, 
And we used to deal with this crap from time to time, where you'd be like, well, you know, it's getting awful dark. You might have to suspend this game. And they were talking about having to suspend this game, which obviously is a big deal, given that the Ivy League championship is at stake. And because the fancy Ivy League doesn't send, they're, they're officially... Well, FCS, so Football Championship Subdivision. Used to be good old 1AA. Even though they're in that... They're in that division of NCAA football, they don't send teams to the playoffs. You win, you, you play for the Ivy League Championship, season's over. So this is the end, and I don't know if they were going to come back on Sunday and finish the game, or they were going to do whatever. God forbid ESPN ever gets an answer to that. They never did. So we're just watching the rest of the game going, what the hell happens if... Uh, it gets too dark to play. So anyway, Harvard continues to kick Yale's ass to start the second half. They're up 29 to 13 with 6:52 to go in the third. They're up 36 to 19 with 13 minutes left to go in the game, and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> they um, Yale scores a touchdown, gets a two-point conversion, scored. Um, then they need an onside kick. And they actually get an onside kick, uh, mostly because the kid from Harvard did the worst job of judging how hard a ball was kicked. He just hanging back, waiting for it to come to him, and 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 he was at, then I think at the last minute he's like, "God, this guy's going to cut in front of me and get the ball." So he did this wild, spastic dive at it. Didn't come anywhere close to it. Yale gets the ball back, so Yale scores again in the waning seconds of the game. They score with 18 seconds to go of the game to cut it within a point. And it's dark. Although it was, this was interesting. Those of you who've stuck with me this far, <laughs> like, you can't believe he's talking about Harvard Yale. On TV, you couldn't tell how dark it was getting. And ESPN kept trying to come up with ways to show us that they were, you know, the iris on the cameras would just would just open up wider to get it to suck any amount of light they possibly could in. So you could comfortably watch the game at home. But apparently, uh, if you were on the field or in the stadium, it was starting to get super dark. The most effective thing they did was they did a split screen at one point where they showed it with the cameras all open and then with them set to something else. And it still was bright enough to see, but you could tell, you could see the tunnels in the stadium, and you could see that the light in there was, like, shining through. So clearly, you know, you, t- you never see the light as you, you know, walk into the tunnel, unless you're, you know, unless you're dying. Don't go to the light. You can see the light, like, pouring out, and you realize it must be getting pretty damn dark. So, you're Yale's head coach. You've just had this miraculous comeback. T- you know, the sun's setting. It's, it's already set now behind the rim of the stadium, so it's darker than hell in the stadium. You'd think you would just go for two. You've got all the momentum. Go for two. Win the game on the final play. Fans go crazy. You're a hero. Nope. Kicks the extra point. Go to overtime. So, in overtime, Harvard wins the toss. Big play on first down. Punch it in. Kick the extra point. Back up by seven. All you gotta do is stab Yale. They win. Their precious 500 or better streak is alive. Yale scores again. All right, well, sure as hell now. It's even darker. You're going to go for two, and you're going to win. And nope, kicks the extra point again. Ties it up. Going to a second overtime. So it reminded me of when I was when I was in high school. We used to play in this 
crap little town called Milledgeville, Illinois. And the football stadium in Milledgeville was like, I don't think it was literally carved into the ground, but there's a berm that would go all the way around the field. So when you came in, you literally went down, you, you, you came down a hill to go to the field. And so they had bleachers. The bleachers were it were in the sunken area. And so was the press box. But then there was this big like ring all the way around it. And so these hillbillies would park. And I could say it because I'm also from a town where we're full of hillbillies. These hillbillies would park their cars and their trucks all the way around the rim of the of that berm. And if you gave up a touchdown to them, not only did you have, their band would play and the fans would cheer, all these morons would <laughs> flash their headlights and honk their horns. And I'm watching it thinking, see, if this was Millsville, you could just have everybody turn the headlights on and you could have just played all night. But that's, apparently in New Haven, Connecticut, they don't do it that way. So... I thought, well, for sure he's going to go for two. Well, he didn't go for two. So now we're going to a second overtime. Um, so Yale gets the ball to start the second overtime. Punch it in. Scores a touchdown. And I guess this is the defensible one. Because if you go for two there and you miss it, then Harvard knows well, we just need seven points. They score the touchdown, they kick the extra point, they beat you. So they score the touchdown, they kick the extra point. At this point, I'm completely rooting for chaos, and I just want Harvard to score and kick the extra point and just keep going. But Yale stopped them, won the Ivy League. All their little fans and their cardigans and stuff ran around on the field, and they were all very excited. But it was a, given the fact that it was A, um, it was just a really entertaining game. B, had the huge comeback. Then you had the protest. Then you had the dark. It was a classic. So... Just goes to prove that it doesn't have to be Alabama and LSU for there to be entertaining football. All right, now we're going to completely shift gears. We'll go from the best game of the college football season that I've seen to the exact opposite of best, the Bulls. (laughs) Another team we came in, now obviously not with bear-like expectations. Nobody thought this was a playoff. Well, nobody thought this was a team that could do anything in the playoffs. But there was some thought that this was a team that had enough talent, and the East is a little spotty once you get past, say, the top four teams, to think, hey, maybe the Bulls can sneak in, get a seven or eight seed, get a taste of the playoffs. That would really help their development. Well, they are just god-awful. They've already lost games to the Hornets which should have been two. It took that miraculous six points in the last seven seconds the other day to beat them. Uh, otherwise, they would have lost them twice. The Knicks, who are just embarrassingly bad. The Bulls lost to them. They lost to the Cavs. They lost to the Pacers, who don't have uh, Victor Oladipo back yet. They lost to the Nets without Kyrie Irving. And they've lost games in all kinds of ways. They've lost games to good teams by getting leads and blowing up bad teams by getting leads and blowing them. They've been just completely blown out from uh, horn to horn. And the one thing that we can all, I think, agree upon is that their coach is a complete moron. You know, Jim Boylan is one of these guys who is... There are coaches who know the right things to say they don't do the right things, but they always know the right things to say. There are coaches who can't communicate but do the right things. He's he's that rare, uh, you know, he's he's that rare package of 
doesn't know what to do and doesn't know what to say. He's basically he's he's basketball Terry Bevington. And which is perfect because because Jerry Reinsdorf kept Bevington around too long, and he certainly is going to do it again with Boylan. Although today, apparently, in the Sun-Times, Joe Cowley reported that for the first time, um, Reinsdorf, it has to be Jerry, because Michael does whatever Dad tells him to. Jerry, for the first time, seems to be uh, openly ready to kick the creepy little Gar Foreman out of the way. I will believe that when I see it. Uh, One thing Gar has been good at, maybe the only thing Gar has been good at, has been at adequately kissing the asses of the people who make the decisions about who stays and goes so that he can keep his job. One of the things I would really like to see them do, whether it's whether you fire Jim Boylan, um... You lock Jim Boylan in the office during the games, or, you know, something. But they have maybe just one really good player on their team. And it's not, it's, it's not Zach Levine. Zach Levine? Zach Levine? Zach Levine. It's not Zach Levine. Uh, he is the probably the most talented player that they have, but he takes the worst shots. He plays no defense. Uh, he seems like a good guy. He seems like a guy who plays really hard, but he uh, he just does not have uh, a head for the game. Is Larry Markkinen? He's a really good player who has had really good seasons before. Who is lost this year? Just completely lost. He's averaging only thirteen point six points a game, seven rebounds. He's shooting a miserable. 35% from the field, and 28% from three. And honestly, if you're the head coach and you do nothing else, you have to get Lowry Marketing back on track. That's your job. Because that's the one guy you have with the potential, the ability to be a special player. So you got to fix that shit. And fix it immediately. So one of the things that the NBA... Uh, has been talking about is you've heard all the stuff about load management and a couple of years ago they moved the start of the season up so they could spread games out a little better and give guys more days off. And they've also talked about eliminating some games, which always sounds good until you tell the owners, you know, hey, we want to cut back from 82 to 70 games, so you're all going to lose six home games. And they're all like, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, so now apparently there's a proposal out there where they would go to... 78 games. Everybody would lose two home games to try to help, you know, build in more natural rest for players so that the best players play more often. I have absolutely zero problem with load management. Easy for me to say. I don't buy tickets (laughs) to go to NBA games. Just like the NFL, I watch them on TV. So if one of the guys I like is not playing... I just said, well, I'll watch him tomorrow when the guy is going to play. Because one of the things we have to keep in mind with these guys is that you'll hear, like, you know, old-time basketball players, you know, say, well, you know, in my day we played every game, blah, 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 blah. Yes. But in your day, you probably played, when you were a kid, you probably played 25 games a year. 
I don't know how much pickup basketball you played or anything, but 25 organized games a year. You played for your school, whether it was junior high or high school. And that was pretty much what you played. Well, we've got these the guys who are the generation that's currently playing in the NBA are guys who have come up through AAU and have been playing, you know, upwards of a hundred games a year. So there's and when they're at this, you know, when they're literally physically developing. At some point, you got to rest them, and so that's when we end up with the load management thing. So the proposal cut it down to seventy-eight games. Everybody loses two home games. That's not a big deal. That made perfect sense to me. It actually seemed like kind of a half measure. It seemed like four is certainly not enough games to trim off the schedule. But then we get word that it's going to be, they're going to replace some of that with this ridiculous idea of a mid-season tournament. Which is something that has been espoused by um, self-appointed uh NBA expert Bill Simmons for the last few years. You know, he's got this whole thing about how um, they should take teams and you take the lottery teams and play a tournament, and the winner of the tournament actually gets the first pick. So there's some, so you're actually competing for it instead of tanking for it. Uh, that sounds like a great idea, except nobody wants to watch that. Nobody wants to watch the worst teams in the league play more games at the end of the season, and then. This idea of a midseason tournament, you know, equating it to like um, the FA Cup in uh, soccer or Champions League in soccer, the idea that an, an American sport is going to pause in the middle of the season to play for some phony baloney trophy that nobody's going to care about, I just find completely laughable. Um, it's think about how quickly we got tired of interleague baseball, which was something we all kind of, I don't know if we clamored for it, but we certainly thought it's ridiculous that these teams don't play each other. And then once we got a few years of watching it, we're like, eh, we could probably live without it. That's, I can't imagine that's not going to be the same thing here for um, whatever this midseason tournament is. All right, I do have some Cub things I want to touch upon. Because uh, it's been a while, Sam and I haven't done a uh, a cub or Kyle uh, haven't done a cub podcast because um, we're kind of waiting for them to ruin our winner by trading one of our favorite players. But there was some big news uh, yesterday. Word came out that uh, Charles Schwab was going to buy TD Ameritrade for twenty six billion dollars. You're like, well, who, why do the Cubs care about? That, well, if you know, you know, the Ricketts family, that's how they got their money. Joe, the old man, started TD Ameritrade at the kitchen table. I don't know if he actually started the kitchen table, but, you know, that's always the thing. So <clears throat> there were people saying, see, now they're going to have plenty of money. Just like free agents, which I also found hilarious because I'm sure that's what that's what Joe and Marlene want to do is take all the money and just give it to the kids to dump back into the baseball team. So I made a half and joking tweet about uh, Tom saying, um, you know, being asked, well, how will the sale affect you know the Cubs payroll? You know, that's a lot of cash, and him saying, well, it's gonna be tough to ask Dad for more money now that he's unemployed, which I don't know is. <laughs> that far from reality. 
Um, one of the things you can do on these podcasts is you can send us a voice message. And it actually works. And uh, intrepid listener uh, Mike, Mike Prosnowski uh, actually sent us one on the 4th of November. But we haven't done a podcast since then, so it's just sat there. So I'm going to play Mike's um, message that he left us right now. And any of you can do this. And then we can just drop them elegantly into the podcast. So let's hear from Mike. Hey, guys. Love the pod. Uh, shout out Mike Brott. Hope you're uh, doing well in recovery to get back on the appropriate amount of drugs necessary to be on the podcast. Um, anyways, I was like super high on them going after Espada when the manager search came down to him and Ross. And now that I think about it, you know, the Mets are normally the team that always has like the last of the pick of the litter every time they have a managerial open opening, excuse me. And even they decided to go with Carlos Beltran of all people over Joe Espada. So I'll take the L on that one, and maybe we all should have realized, you know what, maybe this guy really isn't anything special. Anyways, enjoy the show. Thanks, guys. So anyway, so I love that take, and I agree with it, that it's always a bad sign when a guy that you think would be a good manager um, was left without a job when even the Mets needed one. (laughs) It's funny, though, on the Espada thing. I mean, Sam brought up on the podcast if there was a – a wonder at the time when it obviously he was the other serious candidate, you know, the only one they brought back for a second interview other than Ross. Um, the whole domestic violence thing with the Astros had just kicked up at the beginning of the world series. And the idea that it, so maybe if Espada and Ross were really close, the tipping point wasn't so much the, uh, Cubs history and experience with Ross as it may have been, we're not going to have another one of these awkward press conferences. Where we hire a guy, and now we have to talk about domestic violence. We've already had to do it with Aroldis. We had to do it with Addison. We're not going to do it again. <clears throat> so it could be that that really wasn't a part of it, but I wonder how much a part of it was uh, the the sign-stealing stuff. Now, obviously, it hadn't come out, um, Somebody dodged a bullet there <laughs> by not hiring Espada and then having to deal with the fact. I mean, he's a bench coach, and we know that, you know, they talked about how during the their World Series championship year, um, Alex Cora was their bench coach, and he allegedly played a huge role in developing and actually enacting that system during games. Carlos Beltran was a designated hitter that year, and the DH, when he's not actually hitting, has nothing to do except sit around and help your team cheat. So he's implicated in it too. And so then you have, on top of it, now you've got a spada. So it could be that part of teams backing away from him was, I just don't want to have to deal with this stuff too. Let's get another year away from it, Joe, and good luck maybe you can get a job. The only way that, the one that really kind of stuck out was when all the jobs had been filled and the Giants looked at Gabe Kapler and said, sure, let's try it again. You know, we'll give you another shot. Because I can't imagine there's anybody out there who was really like, how does Gabe Kapler not have a managerial job? He's a genius. I mean, this is a guy who, on his first week on the job with the Phillies, went out to change pitchers and didn't have anybody warming up in the bullpen. 
That's a special kind of dome right there. A couple other quick Cubs things. I wrote about this on the uh, on the Athletic. This idea, and we're seeing it again, because now the rumor is out there that the Cubs are going to sit down with Javi Baez's agent at the winter meetings and start to work on a contract extension, which would be great. Of course, the Cubs should keep Javi. He's a great player. You know, young, still ascending. Of course, you want to keep Javi. But it invariably it becomes, well, they need to sign Javi because they're not going to be able to sign Chris Bryant, which is complete bullshit. The, the only re- there is there, there should not be a can't with when you're talking about signing Chris Bryant because all you have to do is offer him the most money and of course he's going to stay because he likes it in Chicago if I were him I wouldn't give up cash just to stay but if it's close or the same or even or better yet if it's better of course he's going to stay and this whole idea that the Ricketts can't like they have to choose they don't have to choose they may choose to choose, but they don't have to. And we're not going to hold a fucking bake sale for them. This is a a family that owns an asset now that is supposedly worth $3.1 billion, although that's from the Forbes valuations and those things are, you know, who knows how they actually figure that out. If it's, if it's as accurate as when they would do their list of the richest people every year, we found out that was crap because guys like Wilbur Ross and Donald Trump would call them and complain about their valuation and tell them, no, 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 I'm actually worth this much. And they'd be like, okay. So it makes for a real quality list. <clears throat> but the idea that the, the Cubs can't keep both is ridiculous. Of course they can keep both. And if they don't, it's not because they were put in some you know untenable position. It's because they decided to be cheap and screw them if they don't keep them both. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we also f- we got the list of finalists for the Ford C. Frick Award, which is the broadcasting equivalent of being elected to the Hall of Fame. You get a plaque that's Hall adjacent. I think maybe it's in the maybe in the men's room, just around the corner from the hall, in you know between the museum and the actual Hall of Fame. You know, they put your plaque up there, um, right by the hand towels and the. They have these really nice, those fancy Dyson, uh, um, you know, hand dryers. They have those. It's right next to that. It's very prestigious. And amongst the finalists are three people near and dear to all Cub fans. Um, Well, maybe near for two of them, not dear. But uh, Virgil Patrick Hughes, who's been the... uh, the longtime radio voice of the Cubs, um, a guy who is uh, a few things about Pat. He's a complete nerd. He's taller than you think. He's a better athlete than you think. He's an excellent basketball player back in the day. Uh, and if, in my opinion, he's an excellent baseball announcer. Just Pat is good at all the things you have to be good at to be a play-by-play announcer. When Pat is calling the game, you are never confused as to where the ball is. And that's the most crucial thing that any announcer in any sport, at least any sport that has a ball in it, um, if if you're listening, because you know, he's a radio announcer, and I know there are people who turn the TV down and turn the radio up, and so they're watching it, but the vast majority of people who are experiencing the game on the radio are doing it because they can't see the game. 
They're in their car. They're in their office. They're blind. They can't see it. And so the announcer has to be able to draw that picture in your mind. And Pat does it really well. We have an example in another sport in Chicago where the guy who does that is the last thing on his mind is where the ball is ever. It's always an afterthought with Jeff Joniak as to you don't know where the ball is, you don't know what the down is, you don't know how many yards they gained. What you do know is uh, what the what color the trim is on the uniforms or if they're going left to right on your radio dial. That seems to be the only things that he's really worried about. So Pat's excellent. One thing I'm confused about from the interwebs, because I saw it both ways, is how Pat spells Virgil, his real first name. Yeah, you would think it's V-I-R-G-I-L, but I saw it at least as many times V-E-R-G-I-L as I did V-I-R-G-I-L. So I'm very intrigued. Not intrigued enough to do enough research to find the answer. Just intrigued enough to wonder about it out loud on a podcast. So that's how interested I am. Two of the guys he's up against are, what's the word I'm looking for? Hack. They're hacks. Ken Hawk Harrelson, the uh, longtime parody of an announcer for the White Sox. Uh, the man who is more famous for claiming to have invented the batting glove because he wore his golf glove one time during batting practice and liked it and then kept using it. Turns out that, I think, is bullshit. Uh, the guy who is to um, is to Yaz, Carly Stremsky, what uh, Dusty Baker was to Hank Aaron. You, you can't have a conversation. You can't overhear a conversation of Hawk for more than five minutes without learning that he played with Yaz and that Yaz was the best at whatever he's currently looking at that he ever saw. Same with Dusty. Within three minutes of every conversation, you find out that he batted behind Hank Aaron with the Braves. Um, Hawk, who's best known for two things as far as his style. Um, Not talking when something bad happens to the White Sox which is an interesting way to go when you're an announcer and your job is to talk about what's happening. And um, I guess three things. Uh, Yelling at umpires from the press box loud enough that he actually expected that the announcer was hearing him. And leaving the press box, leaving his his announcer's booth during a game after Todd Frazier was was hit by the pitch to go check on Todd Frazier. Now, if any of that seems like the kind of thing that ought to get you in the Hall of Fame. By all means, vote him in. But it's not. And then, hack number two (coughs) is the immortal Mike Shannon of the St. Louis Cardinals. Mike Shannon, the guy who basically announces baseball as though he's uh, a lounge singer in the 60s in... Oh, either New York or Los Angeles. A lot of this. Um, Never been a terribly good announcer. Um, He's just bad. And I know supposedly he's beloved um, because he's a Cardinals announcer, but I got news for you. He's not. Um, Used to own a couple of bars, which then I think was down to just one. Um, 
It's most famous for being the last place one of their pitchers ever stopped before a fateful drive home one night. Um, Not that that ought to keep Mike out of the Hall of Fame alone. But he's just not good. It was actually always, it's always kind of fun. To listen. Do yourself a favor. I, if I, I'll put this on the, on the, um, on the post. One of my favorite moments in Cub history. Obviously, got um, exceeded the the very next year, but it's still one that's near and dear to me. Will showcase the greatness of Pat Hughes, and whatever Mike Shannon is, is the final out of the 2015 NLDS, when Hector Rondon strikes out Stephen Piscotty. Pat gives that great call, the one that starts with, um, if you can't sit down, you are not alone, Um, you're going to remember where you are right now for the rest of your life, that kind of thing. So MLB put together a package where you got the Pat call, then you got the Brian Anderson call on TBS, but then in a bit of deliciousness, you it finishes with the radio call with Shannon. And it's amazing. I won't spoil it for you, but I will I will find it and I will add it. You could just pump that thing right into my veins. Last thing I want to talk about with the Cubs is last year we were sure that one of the one of our, you know, favorite young players was going to get traded. We didn't know who, but it was very clear that Theo in his mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, post-game, post-season press conference, basically laid it out that something's got to change. we got to shake things up. And we didn't know if it was going to be Schwarber or if it was going to be... I think we all thought it was going to be Schwarber. <coughs> Somebody was going to get traded. And then nobody got traded. Well, we're kind of back to that again, although people right now are making the assumption that, yes, it's going to happen, that they're not going to trade Schwarber because they've already decided not to keep Nick Castellanos. I made the case, which I can make again, I made it on this podcast, that um, you absolutely could have both those guys on the team. That's This idea that that's an untenable outfield to have the, the Lumberjacks out there of Schwarber, Hayward, and Castellanos, I, I don't buy it. My solution to that was simply sign Billy Hamilton to be the 26th man. He's basically what, he's all the things Albert Elmora is supposed to be. He's a great defensive player. He can't hit, but at least he's a base stealer, which Albert is not because Albert's so slow. Uh, and then if you get a lead late in the game, you just you put Billy in center, you move Hayward to right, and you either have Castellanos or Schwarber in left for the rest of the game. That seems like that would be fine. It seems to be there's seems at this point to be no traction for that. Um, although if things have started faster this year. You know, more free agents are actually signing even before the winter meeting. So maybe it's not going to be a hostage situation like it has been the last few years. But absolutely, I think if we get into February, at least, and Castellano still isn't signed, that price is going to come down. And um, not that the Cubs need a value, but everybody likes a value. And that could be that they go, you know what, we can make this work. I mean, they remember they weren't going to, they had moved on from Dexter Fowler after the 2015 season. And, uh, he fell in their lap, and uh, he ended up being a a very integral part of a World Series championship team. So I did some uh, some fancy math. I have this uh, I have this formula that I've worked on. It's not quite as advanced 
as uh, I don't know if as some of you will remember, we used to have a, uh, I had a number that I made, a very scientific number, uh, to calculate Hank, uh, Henry Blanco, uh, Hank White, to uh, calculate his actual batting average. Because his skill could not be defined simply by traditional batting average. So I uh, came up with a formula, the Hank White equivalent batting average, or HWECPA. And Huckman took all kinds of things into account. It's based on a formula that Bob Euchre had worked out for himself when he was a player, which was um, you counted things like really hard foul balls during an at-bat. That, that would count as a hit. Or uh, if, a, if a defender made a great play, you'd count that as a hit. Or if in batting practice, you really got around on a couple of games, give yourself a couple of hits for that game. So Hank, who I think was a 207 career hitter, something close to that, uh, his Huckba was much more indicative of what a great offensive player he was. It was about 470. Um, so I, I, I came up with a, a similar formula, although it's measuring something completely different, on who are, who's most likely to be traded. So I'm, I signed, I put all these numbers into the big uh, Decipio Abacus to um, calculate which of these players, what the, what's the percentage chance these players will be traded? So I started with Kyle Schwarber who had a huge second half for the Cubs. If you can believe his second half, which I think he can, has turned into the kind of hitter that we all thought he was going to. Still has the power. Actually mixed in a few doubles, which was something he didn't do. Cut his strikeouts way down. Uh, became a very valuable hitter late, not even late in the season, from All-Star game on. Uh, so I don't think it's very likely. So uh, it's been a 17.4% chance Kyle's going to get traded. Not a great chance, but it's a chance. Uh, Ian Happ, who uh, spent the first, what, 70% of the season hanging out in beautiful Des Moines, came up, got off to a really nice start, went into a slump, thought, oh God, here we go again, came out of it again late in the season, looks like he actually made some real improvements. Ironically, that probably makes it more likely that he's going to be traded, because somebody, you, you, you have to trade somebody with some value, so it kicked out 41% chance. Ian Happ is going to get traded. It's still less than 50-50, but 41% chance. On the opposite of that is Albert Almora, who the more he plays, the more he proves he can't really play. Uh, still gave him a 64% chance of being traded, but that it should be a 100% chance. Um, his lack of production has cut into that to the point where I think there's a, a decent chance that nobody wants him. <laughs> Even if the Cubs bring the asking price way down, teams are like, you know what, we got our own slow guys. We don't need one of yours. Chris Bryant put the numbers into the computer. The computer started to smoke, and not in a good way. But it told me the percentage chance Chris Bryant will be traded is 0.002%. So, what is that, two thousandths of a percent chance? That's what it gave Chris Bryant. Uh, I decided to try Craig Kimbrell. You know, the Cubs got him at a discount when they signed him. Um, yeah, I didn't like that one either. 4% chance. There's not a lot of teams beating down their door for a closer who very well could, with a full off season and a normal spring training, bounce back. He's never going to be the the Braves version of, King, of uh, Craig Kimbrell, but certainly should be a competent uh, big league closer again. Maybe not a completely shut down one like he used to be. <clears throat> but I think that um, there's no trade market there for him. And I don't think Cubs would trade him anyway. So 4%. And 
And then finally, I put in our good buddy, Wilson Contreras, who the consensus is is the most likely one to be traded. I don't know if anybody who's saying that is doing it out of anything other than looking at the roster and going, well, they've got a, they've got a decent backup catcher. They've got a prospect who's a good catcher. A good prospect who's a catcher. And so really you'd need to trade Wilson, sign a backup, make Victor Caratini your everyday catcher, and roll with that. So there's dots there you can, you can connect. I think it's lunacy, because when I look at Wilson, I see a very productive offensive player who is, continues to improve defensively. Uh, doesn't have a lot of miles on him as a catcher because he didn't. He he played four years in the Cubs system before he finally they turned him into a catcher. So even though he's 27, he's has low miles as far as a catcher is um, concerned. And like I wrote in the Athletic on Monday, Theo made a huge point of saying that the you know the biggest reason they felt like they needed a managerial change was. They had a team that needs to have a fire lit under its ass. And Joe's not that kind of manager, and we're going to ask a guy who's not the kind of manager to be that kind of manager. I respect that, although I I still think it was ridiculous to let the best manager they've had in a century walk out the door. <clears throat> but that's we've that's been hashed out a thousand times. But the idea that you, you've identified that as one of the deficiencies on your team, and then to play maybe the one position player you have who is a red ass, who always plays with an edge, who always is enthusiastic, who you have to actually tone down instead of amp up, it makes zero sense to me. If, as far as I'm concerned, there's no, there's no, there's no good reason to trade Wilson. Um, there's reasons to trade Wilson. I just don't think there's good ones. And the catching free agent market is almost always mediocre. It was certainly that this year. If you could get yourself excited about 31-year-old Yasmani Grandal, go nuts. Sox got him. You know, good for you guys. Beyond that, there was nothing. I mean, Travis Darno signed a, a two-year, $16 million contract. He's not any good. Steven Vogt, um, he signed today. There's nothing out there. It's just a bunch of former Cub backup retread losers like Robinson Chirinos and Rene Rivera and Alex Avila and Jonathan LaCroix and Wellington Castillo and blah, 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 blah. I don't think we want to relive any of that. The little percentage machine here kicked out 39% for Wilson. Um, I think a lot of people would say it's probably like an 80% chance, but it's my formula. I made it up. It's only 39%. And finally... I teased this at the beginning. If you've made it all the way to this part, congratulations. I actually think this is well worth it. Um, on the original version of this podcast, when it was um, it was Mike Brat and, uh, and I don't guys remember Warren or not, and me, we would always finish it with um, recommendations of things we, movies we saw or TV shows we were watching or, God forbid, things we were reading. Uh, Dick and Jane Go to Prison, I think, was one of our recommendations once. Um, people really liked that, and we've kind of gotten away from it. I'm bringing it back because I'm here by myself, and I just thought I would. So it's this is going to post 
the night before the night before Thanksgiving. So chances are you've got a long weekend. Um, nobody still does the stupid Black Friday thing, right? So it's not like you're going to have to get up at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on Friday and go stand out in front of, I don't even know if Best Buy is still a thing, so you can get a, a TV for $5 less than you can order it on Amazon. Chances are you've got free time this weekend. And so you're probably saying, hey, Andy, what should I be watching? I want to binge something. What should I be binging? I've heard good things about Fleabag. Maybe I should watch Fleabag. Of course you should watch Fleabag. It was very funny. It's also very short. You can knock that off in half a day. But I've got some other things, a little deeper. You should watch. We're going to start with, I haven't even seen this yet. This is just how confident I am in it. Starting tomorrow, on Wednesday, you can watch The Irishman on Netflix, which, um, if I if I read this right, is a 300-episode, uh, one-hour-an-episode uh, miniseries. Is that right? 300 hours? No? Just three hours? Okay, so it's a movie. So you can watch that. The reviews are excellent. Um, so just watch it. Because, you know, you're going to watch it anyway. The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. It's all you're hearing about right now. Uh, the reason you're hearing about it is it's really good. That's why you're hearing about it. And even if you're not a huge Star Wars fan, you know, it's got the whole Western vibe. That was the whole idea behind, you know, Star Wars in the, in the first place was kind of that Western and space idea. This pulls it off amazing. I'm not going to spoil what you see at the end of episode one, but if you're on the fence about it at all, as soon as you see that, you're in for good. Uh, it's, it's, it's very good. And so if you get that, here's my, here's, here's my tip for you. If you decide to get Disney Plus, it doesn't make any sense not to go with the bundle. Because they get Disney Plus $6.99 a month. For $12.99 a month, you can get Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. Go ahead, do it. Because if you get Hulu, then you can watch, I think right now it's just the first four seasons of Letterkenny, which is this ridiculously funny uh, series from Canada with these, um, I don't even know how to describe the uh, uh, rural badasses um, who are on there. I have a couple of couple of tips for it. For if you're going to watch it, if you're going to watch Letterkenny, turn the closed captioning on for two reasons. Number one, they throw out some weird Canadian terms that don't make any sense unless you read them. But also, they talk, they they throw a lot of jokes at you, and sometimes if you're only listening and you don't actually see it, you miss some. Excellent show. I have one request: if you watch Letterkenny on Hulu, I think I I believe what I just read today was on December 27th, all of the seasons are going to be on there. So if you start now, you're not even going to get. It's going to take you a while. By the 27th of December, you'll be ready uh, for the last couple of seasons. If you watch Letterkenny. And you like it, which you're going to. I want you guys to send me some puppers. Not even going to explain it beyond that. Get me some puppers. So how's that? Okay. So, you get the bundle. You get Disney Plus. I'm not being paid for this. Because my only sponsor is Anchor. Um, but if you get that bundle, Disney Plus, you watch The Mandalorian. You also, you get all... I mean, it's, it's, it's freaking amazing. You get all the Marvel movies. You get all the Star Wars movies. You get, obviously, you get every Disney movie ever made. You can watch the freaking Apple Dumpling Gang if you want to. I did one day. I don't know why. Um, I also did this one morning. because I got up really early and had nothing to do. For some reason, I watched Swiss Family Robinson, 
which I hadn't seen since I was a kid. Well, that ended, and then there was a earlier version from the 40s. I believe that's Swiss Family Robinson that we all know and love, where they build the they build the treehouse, so when you go to Disney World, you can actually walk through the treehouse. I think that one's a 1960. There's a 1940 version where old man Robinson, the dad, is the guy who plays Uncle Billy from It's a Wonderful Life. And at one point, he says, I'm all right, I'm all right, which I immediately started laughing at because it's one of his more famous. He falls down off camera. He's drunk in It's a Wonderful Life and yells, I'm all right, I'm all right. He does it again in Swiss Family Robinson. <clears throat> They're drastically different movies. The plot is different in both of them. There's no pirates in the original, which leads me to believe there aren't any pirates in the book. I don't know. I didn't. Re- I never read the book. Um, the kids in the earlier version are complete assholes, just awful. They're supposed to be, but they are. Um, and I always get distracted by the, the one from the '60s because two of the sons are the two kids from Old Yeller. And I always wonder where the dog is whenever I watch it. Anyway, I know how I got on the Swiss Family Robinson thing, but Disney Plus, who watched The Mandalorian and all that other stuff, Hulu, watched Letterkenny. And then if you have, you also get ESPN Plus with this deal. And um, love him or hate him, and I know he beat the Bears in a Super Bowl. They have this, this thing, which I, I knew they were doing. I've seen clips of it all along. Uh, for the 100th anniversary of the NFL, they have this place, this thing called Peyton's Places. And it's Peyton Manning going around the league and doing kind of a historical... It's an NFL Films production, so it's good. And he's going around, he's interviewing... um, He's interviewing people. He interviews... um, He interviews Virginia McCaskey. He interviews Joe Madden and Chris Bryant for some reason. Actually, because they talk about the Bears playing at Wrigley Field. Um, He meets the super fans. So you get Robert Smigel and, and George Wendt. But they're really good. I think I've watched, I think there's 19 of them they've got released so far. They put a new one out every week. And uh, I've actually really enjoyed them. Peyton is genuinely funny. And there's one particularly funny one where it's, I believe it's the Thanksgiving episode. So it was the one they just put up last week. Um, where, because Peyton breaks down some film during the episodes. They, um, him and Eli and Archie and Cooper sit down and break down home movies of them playing football when they were little kids. And it's really funny. So I, whether you like Peyton or not, I do think you will enjoy that. So watch Peyton's Places. Okay. But you're like, this stuff has been really obvious. This has been of no help to me, moron. Anybody could have suggested this. So I'm going to leave you with two things that you should watch one of which you may not have even heard of, another one which, if you did, it's for a great reason. So, HBO had a show um, that just finished its first season a few weeks ago, which when I saw the idea for it, I thought, well, that could be funny. Um, It's a spoof on televangelists with Danny McBride and John Goodman and um, Adam Devine and Walt Goggins is in it. It's called The Righteous Gemstones. And to be honest with you, that show is so much better and so much funnier than it had a right to be. I just thought, eh, this is something I'll probably... Danny McBride could be a little much. He's 
great in it. The show is amazing. And chances are, if you've heard anything about it, you don't even know why you've heard about it, but you've heard somebody saying, running through the house with a pickle in my mouth. That's what it's from. It's just great. I will put that song also in the show notes. If you get HBO, then obviously you have HBO Now, or HBO Go, HBO Go. Knock those out over break. It won't take you very long. It's, it is surprisingly funny. And I say that um, not just because the woman who plays Judy Gemstone actually is now following me on Twitter. But I say it because the show is funny. And so the final one I want to leave you with is one, a show that I, Netflix kept pushing it on me and I kept ignoring it, thinking, why would I want to watch this show? It seems dumb. I'm not going to watch it. And I started watching it. And it is very funny. Very good. And kind of dirty. It's a show called Workin' Moms. And the star of the show is Catherine Reitman, who is Ivan Reitman's daughter. And um, her brother is... um, What's his name, the director? Reitman. Can't think of it off the top of my head. Um... So she stars in this show, and the first thing, I swear to God, this is going to happen to you, because I think it happens to everybody who watches the show. You're going to watch the first one, and it's funny, and you're like, oh, I like this show, this is pretty good. And you're going to be obsessed with her weird mouth. It's, it's like she doesn't, like she's missing part of, like, the, the very middle of her upper lip, and then the sides kind of stick down a little too far. And so, like, when she closes her mouth, it never, like, completely closes. And you're going to be distracted by that for maybe two episodes. And you're just going to forget about it. And if you Google it, you're going to get a whole bunch of crap about how, oh, she had it's a, it's, she had a, a failed, <laughs> like, she tried to have uh, lip implants, and then she was allergic to them, and they took it out. And all, it's all bullshit. She has the exact same mouth that her dad does. Um, she was born with it that way, it's fine. And they actually, there are at least two episodes where someone makes fun of her mouth, which I actually think is very funny and very self-aware. Um, the show is very funny. The guy who plays her husband in the show is her husband in real life. Um, there, it's basically focuses on, it all rotates around, um, a mommy and me class. This all sounds stupid, but it's not. Um, and so that's, her friends are in the mommy and me class with her, and, but it branches off and you spend time with them and their families and their jobs. And it should be. Um, it should be hokey and kind of dumb. It's not. It's a very funny show. It's surprisingly edgy. Um, I just really enjoyed it. So it's well worth your time. It seems like a thing. This is this is why this is a valuable recommendation. It seems like a thing you shouldn't watch, or you're not going to have interest in watching. Watch it. All right. So that's this is more than enough. I you honestly should get some kind of prize if you've made it to the end of this uh, podcast, but you're getting nothing other than my lifetime admiration. Uh, we will be back next week with another Bear podcast. Um, and eventually something's going to happen with the Cubs. But I really want to leave you with, I'm teasing, I haven't scheduled it yet. But, you know, I did an interview with Kelly Dwyer about a month ago. I've got another one-on-one interview podcast coming up within the next week or two. Which I think is going to be great. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So, thank you for subscribing. And, uh... Stick around, we've got more good content coming up, and I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks.